Happy Wednesday, Oakland! And we're live on all popular mediums and channels. Hope you are having a great day, Oakland. If you are in the building, say hey. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Unleashing the Future of Work, a guy live B2B jam session. I hope you're doing well, no matter where you're tuning in from, whether it be Oakland, Cali, Texas. No, we definitely have some Texas people in our guy community or the Ukraine, Lebanon, wherever you're at. Hope you're having a beautiful Thursday or Wednesday, noon, or afternoon, evening, wherever you're at. Excited to have you join us on this episode because today we're going to be diving deep with a good friend of mine and one of the ma- most amazing intellectuals that I've gotten a chance to speak of, uh, speak to in, in, in the past. And we're going to be diving deep on all things around his career, you know, how he actually founded and started the uh, his popular podcast, the Black Equity Podcast, the Black Equity Podcast. DJ Moultrie is the host of the Black Equity Podcast, as well as the founder of the Black Equity Network. And he's going to dive deep a little bit on what inspired the movement around the Black Equity Network and how what inspired the podcast and some of the people that he's interviewed in the past. And I'm really excited to dive deep with him because I believe this is a timely discussion we'll be having, given everything that's going on around what race relations in the U.S. will look like for now and in the future, but also this emphasis around empowering and literally how do we build a next generation where we're thinking more inclusively about who we're giving capital to uh, in the entrepreneurship and private equity space, but also how we're empowering and giving a platform for the next generation of talent, whether they come from non-traditional backgrounds or people of color or just don't have access to the space that some of us are privileged to have have access to in tech, how do we really empower and foster an ecosystem around them that ensures that they succeed? So I'm excited to dive deep on that discussion with DJ and have him share a little bit more about his background and you know all of the things he did before building the Black Equity Podcast. So if you are tuning in, please show us some love in the comments. Let us know where you're tuning in from. What's good, Amir Muhammad? It's an honor to have you joining us today. Hi, Amir. Let us know. If you have any questions for DJ and me as we talk, let us know. You know, this is a conversation with everyone. With that said, DJ, welcome to the show, brother. What's going on, Tim? How are you doing? Doing well, man. It's an honor to have you on the show, man. I appreciate it, man. I'm, I'm honored to be here. I'm excited <laughs> about this conversation. I look forward to it. Oh, man. I've been looking forward to it for two weeks now. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Definitely. So let us know, man, where are you tuning in? Where you at? Where are you, you know, joining us from, my brother? I am headquartered in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, I love it out here. I love, love the weather. Um, but I actually was born out in uh, Colorado, and I'm an Army brat. Yeah. Uh, so I lived in Hawaii and Texas, Florida, South Carolina. And about 10 years ago, I, uh, I decided to move to Charlotte, North Carolina. I needed to be by a professional sports team. That was very important. <laughs> for me. So I'm not saying we got the best sports teams, but I needed to be close to a professional sports team. No, seriously though. No, it, it's crazy too, because the sports sports has been on a standstill, but now it's, it's, it's coming back. So right. how do you feel about that? Are you excited to see sports now, you know, being played? Oh man, that's a that's a deep discussion. I'm looking at I'm looking at this NBA. My my concern yeah. NBA is my favorite sport. Yeah. But my concern is, why are all the majority black players in the bubble, and where are the owners at? The owners are at home chilling, relaxing. They're not, you know, putting themselves in harm's way. 
That said, I am enjoying the games. I am enjoying <laughs> hey, that's my that's my sport. But it's just a little weird how all the players are in harm's way and the owners aren't. But yeah. other than that, I'm I'm enjoying it. Yeah, man. I also heard that some of them are living in awful hotels based on where they're at in the in terms of league standings. Some right, people, right. people, if you're higher in the league rankings, you're 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 chilling in a nice hotel. But then if you're if you're about what twenty eight, right, <laughs> bottom, right, you are not living living lavishly. I thought that was hilarious. Someone told me that the other day. Yeah, I saw I saw the the food that some of them were eating, and they were like, "No, this isn't going to cut it." But then I've seen other people like our food is fine. So I'm like, I thought y'all were in the same place, but I, I don't know the full details. So hopefully when this is all over, we'll have some type of documentary that kind of shows us what happened uh, during this time. Yeah. We'd love for you to share a little bit more about, you know, before starting the Black Equity Network, as well as the Black Equity Podcast, you know, what were you doing? And you are also an investor as well. So tell us a little bit more about that journey. How did you start get started investing and kind of what transpired to lead your starting the Black Equity Podcast? Sure. So I actually, uh, my, my graduate degree was in acquisitions. Hmm. And I chose that uh, that area because I knew nothing about it. I didn't have any type of um, reasoning behind it. I just said, hmm, acquisitions, that sounds interesting. And so as I was taking the coursework, a lot of it was around government contracting. Uh, and they also talked about uh, the acquisition of organizations and, and businesses. And so I said, well, this is very interesting. Now, here's the thing, in my, my opinion. Um, as I was getting my MBA or receiving my MBA, I felt like they were preparing me to still go out and actually work for somebody else. Yeah. So it wasn't the standpoint of, hey, you know, we're going to teach you how to acquire. It was, we're going to teach you how to help other companies acquire. Wow. And so I said, I mean, that's cool, but I want to be able to do it for myself. Yeah. As a uh, business. And yeah, that's the way I thought. You know, if I was going to school, I would be able to be independent. But they, they were trying to teach me how to be dependent on someone else. Mm. And they wanted me to go and, and work at, you know, a private equity firm or work for a major bank in their acquisitions department. And so what ended up happening was I ended up working for a major, major bank. Uh, top should be a top five bank um, right now. But. So I was working for the bank and I was managing a portfolio of business uh, in their mortgage department. And I was mm. actually working on the, the acquisitions of default loans. Wow. So, so these default loans would come in at the same time that there was a housing crisis. They were acquiring default mortgages um, for their portfolio. Because if they can get those mortgages to get back paying again, they can then sell those assets off to another bank because now those non-performing um, assets are performing again. So now they're valuable. And so I was managing this portfolio. I was seeing what was going on. And it just so happened that the majority of the people in my portfolio uh, were business owners. And so they actually had the most complex uh, files. So it was a team of like 20 of us working together and nobody wanted to take any of the business uh, the business clients. They wanted to take the people who were just homeowners and didn't have any type of Schedule C or Schedule K-1s or anything in their tax returns because those were complicated. So back then, I was saying, hey, send them all to me. 
Send, mm. send all the business ones to me. Why? I don't know. I just wanted the most difficult ones because I felt like they had the most compelling stories. And so I'm working on these files, uh, working with these business owners, and I started discovering what was really going on. Wow. What was really happening was they had so much, they had, they had money. They had money flowing. They just weren't going to pour it into their second, uh, second home or their third home or their fourth home. Yeah. You know, this to them, if the mortgage defaults, it defaults because they still got somewhere else to go. Yeah. So then I started asking questions like, so what did you do to be able to get this second or third home or fourth home or vacation home? Like, what are you doing? And so a lot of what they were doing is they were acquiring businesses. They were acquiring assets into their portfolio. Hmm. And at the time I was managing an acquisitions portfolio, but it wasn't mine. Yeah. And so I started seeing uh, a difference there. I was I was handling big chunks of money and, and and something very valuable, but it wasn't something I could call my own. Mm. And so I uh, started trying to figure out, well, how can I position myself to acquire for my portfolio? And so I started reaching out, uh, you know, online and social media had just started bubbling up. And I start reaching out to private equity investors. I start reading every book I possibly could on how to acquire uh, businesses and how to acquire assets. And a lot of them look like you and I, and they weren't really open to showing me this world. Mm. And as I started digging, I started figuring out why. When If you find out about how to acquire, you reach ultimate freedom. Mm. And a lot of people don't want you to be as free as them. They, they, they want you to be subservient to them. And mm. so I reached out to these people. They declined. They did not want to work with me. But eventually there were people who saw the work that I was doing and, and trying to work with them. And they said, hey, how about this? How about you find some really great deals for us mm. and uh, present these deals to our private equity firm or present these deals to our, our businesses? We'll pay you a finder's fee in wow. order to find these deals. And at the same time, you'll be learning the process. And in some situations, you may even have equity in some of these deals. And mm. so I started off my career in the uh, as a finder. Let me find this deal. And I, I did it for uh, businesses. I did it in the film industry. Let me find a deal and bring it to people. And I had a knack for finding value. Yeah. And uh, once I saw that, once I started finding the value, I realized everybody I was finding value for, they weren't, they didn't look like you and I. Yeah. And so it led me to another question. How do black entrepreneurs find black investors similar to what I was doing where they can be in the flow of this value? Because right now I felt like it was being missed. Now there were uh, black investors out there but they were not trying to work with people that were black. I know, I, I know that sounds weird. Yeah. They were, they were just going where the money was. Anything mm. that could make them more money, that's what they were willing to do. Not necessarily teach up people unless they were willing to bend to their system. Mm. And so it was actually a, a black face, uh, a, a black face with white principles, in my in my opinion. Mm. And so. I reached a place where I said, well, I guess I'm going to have to build something so this value can be ours. So we, we can have our own equity in it. And so I said, let's create black equity. Mm. 
Yeah. And so that idea then became the Black Equity Network. Wow. How do we create uh, equity matchmaking opportunities? How do we find top level executives opportunities uh, within companies? How do we form strategic partnerships? All the things that are really making the, the things flow in society, how do we create that? And so we built that up and then we decided to also have the Black Equity Podcast as an extension of mm -hmm. what we were doing on a daily basis so that we can highlight some of the people within that network. And that's how the uh, the beginnings of Black Equity Network and Black Equity Podcast began. That's powerful. So the network actually came before the podcast. Yes. Where a lot of people probably assumed that the podcast came and then the network. Correct. The <laughs> network was first. We were doing the work. And I kept hearing people say, you should start a podcast. You should start a podcast. And now there's, there's another story. Yeah. Back then, I was I was thinking, well, what I'll do as Black Equity Network is I'll do a strategic partnership with other podcasts and you know allow what we're doing at the network to be a part of what they're doing. I reached out to Black podcasters. They declined to work with me. They wow. did not want to work with me for whatever reasons. They, they, were, they were very rude, very disrespectful. And I said, well, I guess I'm going to have to create a podcast then. Everything that I've ever had to do is because people blocked me from trying to, to help them. They're like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to work with you. So what ends up happening is you'll present an idea to someone, then they'll steal the idea for themselves, and they'll mm -hmm. say, no, I don't want to do that. But they really do. They love the idea. They just don't want to do it with you. Mm. And so they'll take that idea and go run with it, and then they don't know that – I'm a creator too. <laughs> I can go create a podcast too. And so two years later, we got 20,000 uh, followers on Instagram. We've wow. built a strong uh, fan base for our podcast, but also most, most importantly is we're connecting black entrepreneurs with black investors and we're cutting out any middleman or woman who's stopping uh, this prosperity from happening. And at the exact same time, there's a social unrest happening where there's a rising up where people are like, well, you know, we've been mistreated all this time. It's time that you, you know, show us, you know, some equity. And I've mm -hmm. heard I've heard people talk about black equity. And I said, well, thank goodness that y'all are talking about black equity because we've been talking about it for the last two years. Y'all are late to the party. Mm -hmm. So how does that make you feel, man? Because you saw, uh, I mean, a huge social injustice happening in the private equity space, which inspired you to build the Black Equity Network. When you realize that, that even within, you know, our own community, there were people who didn't want to support each other. How did that make you feel? I didn't take it personal. One of the four agreements Don Miguel Ruiz says is nothing personal. It had really nothing to do with me. And the reason why I knew it had nothing to do with me, because they never got a chance to get to know me. Yeah. It was... What, how does it make me feel? It makes me feel disappointed that there's so many barriers for people who are trying to reach generational wealth that they're willing to throw someone to the side mm. just because they're not willing to play that person's game. Mm. Many people want you to, to sign imaginary contracts with them mm. that says that you must worship them, you must uh, follow everything that they say, and if you don't do that, you're out. It's, it's almost like an unwritten rule in certain circles is that you have to play by their game or they're not going to feed you any more of, of the, the information that they're giving you. And no, what they'll no, do is they'll keep information out. from you. I, I, I love so this. They, 
Like, the only imaginary well, so contract I would ever sign would be a Beyonce's. <laughs> Whatever imaginary contract Beyonce had. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know Jay Z going to accept that. <laughs> but you, you go right ahead, brother. <laughs> well, no, continue as you were saying, brother. Um, so there's these imaginary contracts that people get you to sign. And what I mean by imaginary contracts is, hey, you can be a part of what we're doing and we'll introduce you to our network and we'll let you uh, have access to everything. But if we don't like what you're doing, there's a grace period where we'll ask you to leave. Mm -hmm. And so you never really sign anything. They just kind of let you know up front that we have all the control, we have all the power. And if we don't like you, we have the influence over this network to get rid of you at any time. They basically tell you that without saying it. And so you're just like, oh, okay, well, I, I just want to be a part of this. And so you'll run towards something. You'll sign an imaginary contract in your head, knowing that at any time these people can pull you from the opportunities. And so what I wanted to do is create a space that didn't involve imaginary contracts. It involved uh, creating value for the network and then allowing those people within the network uh, to move independently without us. Once you've once you found what you need, I shouldn't be involved in that. I shouldn't be meddling in people's business affairs. Mm. There, there should be a free flowing highway of generational wealth. Nobody should be uh, a gatekeeper trying to stop that from happening. And mm. so I find I find myself having to gatekeep the gatekeepers and get them the hell out so people can uh, allow the, the generational wealth to flow. There's people standing in the way of prosperity uh, just so then they can have access to it while others can. And that, to me, that's not right. Hmm. It's powerful. No, and you know, it's something that I've actually also seen as well up front. And it's really weird. It's a really weird um, concept, especially because, you know, it doesn't make it easier for people who are people of color and about community who want to build generational wealth or even want to learn how to build generational wealth. You know, I want to ask, you know, how do you feel about all of the broader conversations that are happening now in the entrepreneurial landscape, but also at a national level on how we should be thinking about race relations and bringing opportunity to people without access? And that's a great question. Um, man, this is this is a deep, a deep subject. Mm -hmm. I, I don't like the headline manipulation games. Mm. So you'll have a company that will simply put out a headline. We're putting X amount of dollars into an HBCU just so then they can get the headline. It's not necessarily designed mm. for anything in particular. It's just so they can grab a headline, $20 million here, $10 million here, or we're putting it into the NAACP or um, you know this particular uh, fund. And so I get it, You know, a lot of these, uh, what I call white owned companies, um, are trying to save face. They're trying to show that we're on the right side of history. Even Nike doing the uh, Colin Kaepernick deal. Everybody's trying to be on the right side of history, but you can't just throw money at a problem. Mm. In, in my opinion, if you if we're really going to make any significant changes, uh, we have to have true equity. And here's what I mean. True equity isn't throwing money at an issue. True equity, Nike, is allowing us to have inside information of how we can build our own shoe company and compete with you and go toe to toe with you. That's true equity. Throwing money at something that has nothing to do within your own lane does nothing. If you truly want to uh, in invest in us, throw money into a, a sneaker 
uh, up and coming sneaker company that is a competitor of yours, be a silent partner and put all type of exclusions to make any type of decisions on that brand and let them go toe to toe with you. And don't block them when it's time for manufacturing to happen. Don't try to stifle them off where they can't get the same price points of your manufacturing. Let them go toe to toe with you. Let's see if this company can beat your company in competition. Now, I know we're saying that collaboration is better than competition, but I call bullshit on that hmm. because true enterprise. And I'm sorry if I'm am I allowed to cuss? <laughs> go ahead, man. Go ahead. Am I good? I, I didn't mean to cuss. Okay. Um, I call I call I call I call BS on that because true enterprise comes through competition. You need competition to keep the prices where they need to be. Yeah. Now I have no problem with collaborating. I'm all for strategic partnerships. I'm all for collaboration, but not all collaboration is created equally. Mm. You need competition in order to, for uh, for your companies and for an industry to thrive. You need multiple players in that that spear. That's why you see these big tech companies sitting on, on Capitol Hill because they're saying, hey, you're getting too big. It's a monopoly. Where's the competition? Where's the competition? Yeah. You need competition. And so uh, when I look at the, 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 the question around race, it's do you really care about black people? Hmm. Or are you just throwing money so then the headlines look good? But there's really no equity involved. Hmm. Money does not equal equity. In wow. many, in many, in many instances, your dollar is not worth anything. What what really is worth anything is culture. Mm. What really is worth anything is um, is the the traditions uh, of a people, a community. The the people are the value. It's not the money. Money is just a, a way to measure the value that we all have. But mm. when you start hoarding money, when you start redlining. Uh, certain areas where people can't uh, get the necessary investments. When you start trying to block people through Facebook advertisements, <laughs> you can't necessarily do the things that they want to do. Yeah. That means you're cheating. Mm. And if you're cheating, that means you know that if you were playing on a, on the right playing field, then you would probably lose in most instances. And so if we want true equity, we're, we're asking um, these companies out here, mostly white owned, some black owned, to stop cheating. Stop cheating the game and let's play fair and let's see what happens in a true capitalistic uh, society. What will happen if black owned businesses had the same opportunities as non black owned businesses? What would happen? That's actually a really a powerful perspective. And it speaks to a lot of the conversation and that you mentioned is happening in Capitol Hill around technology. Um, companies being seen as monopolies and also where, you know, we want more competition. You know, one of the things I actually recently was talking to a friend about was this idea of co-opetition, mm -hmm. you know, which is that it's okay to have collaboration and competition, right? Because it makes a, a much more healthier ecosystem and that, you know, it equals out the playing field in a way where one competitor levels up the other as they're learning and competing with each other, which I think is a philosophy that also applies to business and technology. You know, I want to ask you, DJ, well, who have been some firms or leaders, you know, whether it be in tech business that you've talked to on your show that you feel as if they're really leading the movement around this? Well, you have Angel Rich. Uh, she came on our podcast and we were talking about her book, History of the Black Dollar. Uh, to me, that's one of my favorite, most recent episodes. 
um, she was talking about her book, The History of the Black Dollar, mm -hmm. but our conversation ended up talking about the future of the black dollar. Mm -hmm. And the future of the black dollar all is dependent on the rules and regulations that the game uh, is giving us. Mm -hmm. if, if things are in place, like there's a, there's a book out, um, I can't remember the name of the book, but it was about uh, banking black. And, I, and it was written in a perspective of are the is the banking system created to where if you went went in uh, bank black that and put all if all the black dollars were in black banks, would that level the playing field? And see what they found in the book was it, it doesn't really matter about if it's black bank or white bank or any other bank. What matters is the policies around banking. If, if your policies around banking don't change, it don't matter who owns the bank. And so when we're looking at the future of the black dollar, it, it's all dependent on what the rules and regulations are around the dollar itself. Because yes, our, our dollar leaves our community within six hours. Uh, but if the rules and regulations are forcing that community to be surrounded by, um, surrounded or not surrounded by the very things that it needs, then the dollar has no choice but to leave. Mm. If, if if somebody is in a food desert yeah, and they have to go six to 10 miles outside of their area in order to get their grocery shopping, and then that grocery shopping or that grocery store isn't black owned, then of course the money is going to leave the community within six hours because they're forced to have to go to this particular area. You have to get food. Mm. If, if if your shelter, can, uh, if the shelter in the area, if the real estate can only be owned by a certain type of person or these backroom deals are happening, then of course my, my rent or my mortgage is not going into black hands. So it, it, what I've learned through that conversation, I'm sure we'll talk about others as well, is it's not just the black dollar that we have to study. Mm. It's, the, it's the white policies. Mm. It's not black dollars that's the issue, although there are things that we need to do internally to fix those. It's the white policies and the white rules that are not written for uh, black individuals in America. Hmm. And unless we have economic justice, unless we can really have that true conversation, we just we just we just talking. We're not really uh, leveling the playing field in any way. Yeah, no, that's a powerful point. Economic justice, you know, <laughs> and I think that's a whole different playing field than what we usually talk about, you know, which is more so we pity, yeah, and we, we throw money at the issue and don't really talk about what does economic justice and equity look like. Well, here's the thing. If I throw money, if I, if I throw $20 million in the HBCU, mm. but a week before the president of the United States is saying, um, you know, we're going more towards skill based. We're focused more on skill based in our federal in our federal jobs and that, you know, degrees really won't matter. What will matter is your skill set. Well, if your degrees don't matter, <laughs> let's just say that's true. Yeah. If the degree doesn't matter and the education doesn't matter and it's more skill based, then what does 20 million dollars inside of an educational institution really matter? Mm. If, you're, if you're saying the next 10 or 15 years are going to be all about. Uh, the skills you have and not necessarily the degrees you have, then if you throw $20 million inside of an HBCU and all they're going to leave with is uh, a degree and not necessarily the, the, the right skill sets, 
then you're going to graduate four years later in this, you know, this college that had that $20 million come through. Let's say you went there for free. Let's just say it paid yeah. for you for free. No debt. No debt, which is often not the case. No debt. <laughs> but let's just say it did. Yeah. You went there uh, debt free. You come out, but you wasted four years because you don't have the necessary skills to compete in the current marketplace. So what do you have to do then? You then have to go and obtain those skills. Mm. And how much is that going to cost you? It's going to cost you money, time, and it's going to uh, it's going to cost you opportunity costs. Because that same amount of time that you could have had those four years of building those skills, now you got to put another three or four years of learning whatever that skill is, and it may be longer because now you got to figure out which skills are best suited for me. So mm. that's my issue with just throwing money at a, a college or an institution, no matter what college institution is, if we're saying that the future of America is not in colleges or, or universities, then why are we dumping money there? Wow. So so then, so now I got my podcast hat on. Then what I do is I start investigating. When the money goes into these schools and these universities, where does it get filtered to? Where mm. does that money then flow? How does that money operate from the moment that it's received to the next five years. How does that money get distributed? Is it towards buildings? Is it towards the food? Is it towards uh, the salaries of the, the, the professors? Notice, I haven't even mentioned anything that has anything to do with the students. Hmm. And so I'm just wondering, when we're throwing money into a university or even the NAACP, where does that money go? What does that money do? Who's auditing all of this? Or is it just headlines? Because see, what some college and institutions do is they'll just throw money into another nonprofit. Mm. And my question is, who owns that nonprofit? Is the nonprofit that you're throwing that money into owned by the same people who gave you the 20 million? And if it is, then we really need to do some type of investigation. I don't know that to be true because who's auditing these people? No one. There's no auditing. <laughs> and, you know, <it's, laughs> it, there literally is no auditing for this type of stuff because it's just a matter of really you leave with the headline and you you follow through. Right. Hmm. Hmm. Now, that's part this is powerful wisdom, DJ. And, you know, it's, it's something that I believe is really timely. And this is why we really wanted to have this discussion with you. You know, I want you to describe because you're such a you know prolific at interviewing leaders in this space and talking about, you know, what the future can look like for you. Describe what you want the future of black equity to look like. And, you know, how do you see whether it be in the business or tech ecosystem, us, you know, coming together, uh, even in the culture, coming together, and really kind of reforming things making them look different well if you empower a man you 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 uh, end up empowering um just just him you just really empower one person mm-hmm. when you empower a woman you empower an entire nation wow. and so if i were redesigning this entire future i would put black women the right black women now some people are not going to like that i said that but i would put the right black women in leadership positions uh, over not not just leadership positions, but old like uh, equitable positions where they have equity in a company over a lot of these major companies and a lot of these startups that are coming. I think if we invest in black women, uh, the right black women, uh, we can really elevate the future of our culture and our community because it changes an entire nation. It changes the entire landscape of everything. But 
what I, I'm still noticing is that there's a lot of um, a lot of boys clubs. Mm. There's a and there's a lot of girls clubs. There's a lot of white clubs. There's a lot of uh, LGBT community clubs, which is fine. But I would like to see um, I would like to see a table where it's led by a black woman, but everybody else from around the culture is at that table uh, to help her lead, mm. to uh, support her lead, and to not try to backstab the lead. That's what I would really love to see because we've never really tried that on a grand scale. Mm. We've 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 allowed white men to think that they know what they're doing and it hasn't worked. We've uh, we've allowed white women to think that they know what they're doing. It hasn't worked. Mm. And we haven't technically really allowed black men to to really do it. But <laughs> I would be Obama. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, that's another story. But, <laughs> um, I would love to see black women at the helm mm. of an of equitable situation and let them design what they see as the future mm. and then and then see if that design fits where we want to go. And if, if that fits within frequency, let's follow it. And that could be across the board in many different sectors, not just one sector. Uh, the likelihood of that happening is scarce, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I believe the black woman is God, and if if the reason why the, the black woman has been treated the way that she's been treated all this time is because we know that if we put her in position mm. to truly be in leadership, then they'll never get it back. And what people crave most beyond beyond attention is imaginary power, and mm. so these people. I don't know if they're ever going to allow it uh, from their standpoint, but I know on our standpoint, they're not going to have a choice. What we're doing on our end is we're going to find the best uh, black executives, men and women, and put them in position to lead companies equitably and see where that takes us. Cause we've never really done it before. Wow. So it's going to be black men and black women, executive level uh, being placed or finding their own companies uh, that they can then solve real root problems in society. It's not, that's another thing about, in my opinion, about um, the business landscape. I feel like in the business landscape, it's all about making money. Yeah. And I'm like, no, let's solve real issues. Yeah. Let's, let's really, like even this Kodak thing, which I'm a little skeptical about, but Kodak, <laughs> You know, they're switching up their whole business model and now magically they're doing something with vaccines and whatever. Right? Wow, that's weird. <laughs> it's really weird. But maybe there's something to it where it's like, well, you know what? Let's solve a real problem. Hmm. Because obviously disposable cameras wasn't working. <laughs> because we're digital now. And so if we're solving a real problem, like that's that's the reason why Netflix beat Blockbuster. Yeah. Netflix beat Blockbuster, in my opinion. Because Blockbuster didn't care about their customers. The fees were too high. It was uh, difficult to get inventory. You had to go in for the store. They which didn't necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> you went to the store and they're like, oh, we only have five copies and we're all out. You got to wait till it comes back. Yeah. And then by the time you come comes back, they're like, oh, yeah, we got it back, but we put it back out. And it's like, come on, man, five copies, get it together. Yeah. yeah but yeah. when you go digital, 
millions of people can watch that copy mm. at the same time. And so it solved the root problem. And so all I'm saying is let's put the right people in position. Let's uh, truly invest in black women and black men. And let's see what truly happens when we create an equitable society and allow someone like Black Equity Network, someone like you, yourself, to monitor what's happening in this game so these rules and these stipulations don't try to hinder what the progress is uh, is showing us. Yeah. You know, and one of the things why I love talking about this with you and a lot of the work that you're doing is that we're moving towards a more multicultural work, world. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I've always preferred preferred to people that the definition of equity isn't just black. It isn't just white. It is a multicultural, holistic lens on how we how are we really making the pie uh, accessible for everyone. And I think often people really don't understand that when they think about equity. And I, so I love every time you talk about how are we creating, how are we putting them in positions of power where there is no more boys clubs, you know, just white clubs, LGBTQ club. It's really how are we creating this melting pot of innovation, which is quite feasible it's possible and it's happening you know i i think about leaders just such as um um uh, what's her, uh, uh mrs uh, hamilton um uh i'm sorry I'm escapes me right now with back uh backstage capital capital uh-huh yeah you know and you know i think that these and there's a lot of in precursor ventures there's a lot of different venture capitalists as well as firms who are i'm sorry arlen hamilton <laughs> Arlie Hamilton, one of the one female leaders who I think is doing a really terrific job in this space and, and really kind of pushing the mantle and showing what that looks like, really and truly, even with her firm, but also in how she's co- collaborating with other entities. And, and in addition, I think that we see a lot of different organizations now who are really asking themselves the tough questions, which I'm really excited about. And I think, you know, we're, we're at a one of the things that we really talked about, too, is that we're at a pivot point. Because like I think the startups that are coming and being formed right now, what they look like in the next five, seven, ten years, and how in the world that they're serving is going to be reflective of you know what we think about and the future that we see, right? And you know the way that I see kind of the Black Equity Network playing a role is that you all are are fostering that ecosystem, which is really really powerful. No, and I, I appreciate you first of all noticing that yeah. what you're doing. Um, I'll be honest with you. Most people who are noticing what we're doing don't look like you and I. Oh, wow. You're right. There's a lot of up and coming companies that are going, that are uh, black led, that are going to be out of here. They're going to be doing really great things and it's going to be phenomenal to see. Uh, And any small part that we can play in that, I'm honored. Um, I would really, if there's anything that I would really want, it is in our culture to be less tribal mm. because there's a lot of uh, other black equity networks around the culture that with their own name and everybody has their own thing that they're doing. But if an outsider comes into it, even if they look like me and they talk like me, and they talk, they're, they're, they're on the same mission, but because they're not in that person's ecosystem, Mm. They, they throw them away. They say, I, I'm not listening to you. I don't want to hear nothing you have to say. And that's why I say it's not just black women. It's not just black men. It's the right. See, the, what our mission is connecting the right black entrepreneurs with the right black investors. Because, see, some investors are um, predatory. Yeah. And so black, white, green, yellow, whatever, 
They're predatory investors. Some entrepreneurs are manipulative, black, white, green, yellow, whoever it is. So yeah. it's the right intentions of an entrepreneur and the right intentions of an investor. But the only way that can be done, in my opinion, is to have someone in the middle who's paying attention to all of those things to make sure that both sides are getting uh, an equitable uh, slice of the pie. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's really the role that we want to play is how do we make sure that the right one is getting with the right one uh, so then both of these personalities can mesh well for long term success. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't filter out who they partner with. Mm -hmm. It's so true. They just partner. They're it's just so like, hey. Yeah, this is so true. And I talk about this. I talk about this a lot on Twitter, especially for entrepreneurs and founders, is that they don't even vet. You don't vet your partner. Up front, which is crucial. It's crucial. I've had a company. That's crazy. They're in their startup phase. They were, uh, they were trying to be strategic. Yeah. So their entire board, their entire board was black and brown people. That's all. That was really their criteria. Let's be honest with you. Oh. And their entire executive staff was all women. And so what they were trying to do was have the headline. Such and such company has a a, a black all black uh, uh, board of directors. Yeah, and this company has an all women executive staff. So then it grabs headlines, and then people are like, "I want to support them." And so what I'm encouraging you, for the listeners who are who are listening in, hmm. just because it's a black whatever or a white whatever or that ain't that's not quite enough yeah. for me to to get excited. Yeah, it, you could be a you could be a black woman who's a VC and you ain't worth a damn. Mm. You could be a black man who's a private equity person and you ain't worth a damn. You could and same as white, same as Asian. Mm. The the skin color doesn't necessarily matter to this. Of mm. course, we want a more equitable society. Of course, we want a multicultural um, uh, uh, community. Of course, we want that. But then you also have to have the character to match. And if you don't have that character to match, no matter what great opportunities come your way mm. with a multicultural society, you're going to lose that opportunity uh, very fast if you don't have the necessary character. So for me, I'm looking at, you know, what what is your vision? Mm. What is your character? And how do you treat people you think you don't need? Because how you treat people you think you don't need will re re reveal everything. And what you're going to find is a lot of the people that you thought were in position, they about to lose their position because their character couldn't uh, uphold uh, what their dream and what their vision had in store. Work on your character, uh, ladies and gentlemen. That's, That's powerful. That's powerful. Man, DJ, man, it's truly been a pleasure having you on the show. I want to shout out to the amazing Bruce Pulver. Shout out to Bruce, a great friend of mine, who I actually just had on a most recent episode this week. And he says, Glenn Lundy says, your network is what determines your net worth. Hey, Tim, I love this conversation. Thank you so much, Bruce, for being involved and tuning in with us. DJ, man, what is your powerful takeaway for our God community, man, so they can build their own equity networks? <laughs> God community, I'll say this. Have a true vision for the future, which I know a lot of you already have. It's a great, you have a great community that you're building here. And what I love about your community, it is multicultural. I know I came in on some some black power, <laughs> uh, but I have to be true to who I am, right? I have to be true to who I am. 
<laughs> but I know you have a, a great multicultural uh, audience. And so I'll say this. I'm going to actually speak to the opposite or the people that aren't in my community. If you are a white investor or a white business owner and you're trying to figure out, well, how do I truly connect and build a bridge uh, with the with our community? Mm-hmm. Don't throw money at us. Mm-hmm. Now, there may be people in our community that say, no, don't say that. I want the money. <laughs> the money. No, I'm not moved by money. I'm moved mm-hmm. by principles. Mm-hmm. And so. I would say, let's talk, let's communicate, let's build a true uh, bridge because I have no problem working with everybody, but you can't just throw money at me and come sit down at the table and say, now it's equitable. That's unacceptable to me. And so my my closing remarks is, if we're truly gonna build this this future of work and the future of what we what we're seeing, we all have to be at this table. We all have to have this conversation. But here's what we're not going to do anymore. We are not sending out any memos and we're not asking for seats at any tables. This is a new table that is being built with everyone, um, with, with everyone making the decisions of how the table is going to look, how the chairs are going to look. You can keep your old table. I don't want it anymore. We were asking for the last hundred years to be at that table. Mm-hmm. F your table. We are now saying we're going to build a new table. Do you want to join us? Now, if you decide not to join us, that's up to you. But at least we're inviting you to this new table. But if you stay at your old table, we're not coming anymore. It's a new day. Yeah. And uh, hopefully you'll join us uh, in, in, in that future, the future that we both see. Mm, that's powerful, DJ. Mr. Moultrie, man, it's been a pleasure, man. We need to have you on for a future episode, man. What do you think, brother? Thank you, Tim. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. This has been a great conversation. I appreciate it. Oh, man. Thank you, brother. Talk to you soon, man. <laughs> And that was the amazing DJ Moultrie on this episode of Unleashing the Future of Work, a guy live B2B jam session. DJ is amazing. Share links to his Instagram, his newsletter for the Black Equity Network, as well as his podcast. Definitely join the Black Equity Network movement that he's building and is a part of. You know, DJ is a fantastic leader that, you know, has great principles. And one of the most powerful things that I believe he says is how are we thinking about the future? Right. And how are we including everyone um, in building this future of work where we see the opportunity together, which is really, really important. So shout out to DJ for joining us on this episode. With that said, thank you so much. If you tuned in, if you love this episode, please share with your network on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever you're tuning in and watching the B2B jam session from. And most importantly, our beta has been going great. So if you want to get involved in GuideApp's beta, please check out GuideApp.co early access, guideapp.co, early access. Get on our wait list. We have amazing companies who are currently involved from Nike to LinkedIn to a few other great companies that I think you would love to be a part of. So definitely check out guideapp.co. We are building an amazing movement and we're excited to be moving with our community. With that said, thank you so much for tuning in. As always, shout out to Oakland. If you're tuning in from Oakland, if you're tuning in from elsewhere, much love to you as well. And once again, peace, love, and abundance. Talk to you tomorrow. Peace.